Recording from Starfish Mission in lovely San Francisco, California. We are catalyzing coherence, signal amidst an increasingly noisy world. I'm Matthew Perkowski. And I'm Brian Hofstein. We'll be your conceptual Sherpas as together we traverse the frontiers of human thought. And explore the deep patterns that connect us all. Welcome to Catalyzing Coherence. We are here today with Nicholas Paul Breisowitz of the Long Now Foundation. Uh, we're sitting in an absolutely beautiful space. Uh, it is the Interval Bar, which is the bar of the Long Now Foundation. You can probably hear some, uh, some sounds in the background of the beautiful San Francisco Bay. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's a pretty wonderful place to be. Thank you for having us here, Nicholas. It is so good to be back in this room talking <laughs> to you guys. I feel like we've had some of the most amazing conversations back in this very room. Yeah. So the fact that we're going to be able to record this podcast here is just, it's perfect. So yeah. thank you guys. We've had some epic conversations in this back room here. Ah, oh, that's what it's for, right? <laughs> and think of all the epic conversations we haven't even been present for in this room. Right? I know. Yeah. This room is charged with an energy of thoughtfulness that Truly. I really appreciate so yeah so thank you guys for being up here um yeah I don't know where do you want to start should we talk about the long now foundation a little bit should I yeah, get tell intro? us a little bit more about the space paint a picture for our audience yeah well the space we're in right now god I'm looking at Matthew and Brian there is a beautiful leather backdrop to them we have these tall seats here in this back room which we call the Eno room because Brian Eno is one of the founding board members of the long now foundation um, and this, this bar and cafe is a very unique space here on San Francisco's northern waterfront. Um, it's kind of right at the intersection of art and science. Um, and it's, it's full of really interesting Easter eggs. Every, every <laughs> single Truly. corner of this building hides I'm not sure Easter eggs even, even, even do them justice. That's yeah, right? There's yeah, just beautiful some... piece of, pieces of art and technology and engineering wonders that baffle the mind. Yeah, all kind of constellated around a floor-to-ceiling library. And <laughs> I have to imagine that if you're walking past it for the first time, um, it, it's something else. Like, it, yeah. it resonates with the right people. Um, and those are our people, and we invite them back into this room to have <laughs> conversations just like this. Yeah. So, you know, um, by way of providing an introduction for everyone listening out there who's not familiar with the Long Now Foundation, uh, Long Now is a nonprofit organization here in San Francisco um, at the center of a constellation of really ambitious projects. And all of these projects are working to expand our sense of the present moment to include the next 10,000 years and the last 10,000 years. So that 20,000 year period, we call the long now. And we're trying to explore creative ways to seed a sense of that, what we call deep time, a sense of our place in this civilization scale time period. So, you know, reaching all the way back to the first temples, the first cities, 10,000 years ago, you have Jericho, you have Gobleki Tepe and all of that stuff. And then reaching forward into like a foggier space. What's going to be around in the next 10,000 years? You know, mm -hmm. how much of how much uh, of our story is Earth going to play into? Yeah. Is it going to be, will we be multi-planetary we'll species? Then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. who knows? Yeah, God, there's a conversation there for sure, too. Um, are we, you know, well, who is it? Ray Kurzweil, I think, said that the first person to live forever has already been born. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there's that. So we can talk about <laughs> so that stuff. I guess either the royal we as in humanity or <laughs> us personally, whether yeah. we, we will actually be able to You know to what? I enjoy my conversations with you guys so much that if I was here still doing this in 10,000 years, I think that would be all yeah. right by me. <laughs> but yeah, so it's so long now. You know, we were started in 1996 around a flagship project called the clock of the long now so some people may have already heard of this this is kind of the 
project we're most well known for, but the Clock of the Long Now is a, a, a monument size uh, uh, piece of machinery inside of a mountain in West Texas designed to keep perfect time for the next 10,000 years. Uh, our, our board member and founder Brian Eno, who's a British musician who invented ambient music among other things, um, is also kind of known for his work in generative music and he's designed a chime generating mechanism of which we have a prototype right here in the bar. Um, and that chime generating mechanism ensures that no two visitors to the clock on any two days across the next 10,000 years hear the same bell chime. So, so when you go to see amazing. Big Ben, when you go see Big Ben, you hear the same bell chime yeah. every single time. Mm -hmm. Well, over ten thousand year time scale, that's going to get kind of boring. Yeah. <laughs> so you need something. You need to inject some, uh, some something interesting in there. Um, and so Brian's, I, you know, brilliant stroke of genius was to make sure that you get a special chime just really. for you. And he does and that too. He's got a ambient painting number one hangs above the bar here at the interval, which is <laughs> yes. a generative art piece as yes. well. Yes, to anybody that stops into the interval, when you go to ask a bartender for a menu or a drink, behind them is going to be this really interesting uh, piece that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a, these interesting LCD displays that have images that rotate out every couple of seconds or so. So the image composition that you're seeing, uh, you'll be the last human being to see that unless you take a photo. So there's this interesting kind of bimodal juxtaposition of the ephemeral and the eternal. Like that image, that, that structure lasts and endures, but the actual image that's on the structure, it's only there for a fleeting moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's, there's, in addition to that ephemeral and eternal, I think there's another juxtaposition between the organic or the emergent and the analytic in that sense, where, you know, you're extending, you, you first, either in the art piece or in the clock, you have this, you know, this extension of, of a time period over which you have this mechanical device that is going to be you know, highly calibrated and finely tuned to keep perfect time. And yet on the auditory channel, when the bells ring, it, it's generated in a way that, it, or created in a way such that it's also novel. There's novelty over time. Um, or in Brian Eno's uh, picture hanging above the bar, or generative art piece hanging above the bar, you know, there's this balance of, of the analytic technologies and, and the understanding of, of how to actually use computational structures or tools or engineering tools uh, in a way that also respects the emergent novelty and, and constant creation of nature. Um, and I think that really resonates with the idea of, of deep time in the sense that you know, if we are going to make it for that, you know, if we are going to make, if we're going to survive that 10,000 years, or if we are going to create structures that are flexible or adaptive enough to, to last that 10,000 years, it seems like we have to do a much better job of, of weaving those two pieces uh, of our of our being and of our society and of our uh, of our emergent reality together. Well, there's something aesthetically beautiful about having those two cheek by jowl, right? Yeah. There's it's almost like there's two kinds of longevity, and I don't know if there's been any work done here, like thought work, um, but there's this longevity that comes with like the clock or a cathedral, like this building, this built environment longevity that's like once you build it, it lasts, it endures. This clock is designed. I mean, so many. They've thrown so many engineer, engineering minds at this project specifically with the intention that this thing is going to keep perfect time for 10,000 years. And so that's one kind of longevity. But there's the other kind of longevity that you point to, which kind of passes through this fleeting ephemeral moment. Um, and I, I think I identify with that kind of longevity because that's what the human experience is, the human condition. It's like I am, like I, I am, I am a, you know, God, I'm just trying to think of a role. I'm a brother, for example, right? Mm -hmm. But like, I'm not the first brother 
And I'm not going to be the last brother, but like I have this chance to inject novelty into the way that I interpret what it is to be a brother. So this 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 brother archetype lasts yeah. well beyond me in both directions. Yeah, you're like it's, playing a part, but you get to play the part how you see fit. Yeah, and it's it's not like I hmm. don't have any way of steering that and how it goes, but it's also not like I really have a way of steering that. Like I'm both it's I'm both maximally invested in this. Like I'm both in the driver's seat and I'm on the wave I'm like floating like a cork on the river and so it's kind of like this this dual nature of it there's something real about that there's something truthful about that and I think Long now touches on that in a way that very few organizations really get yeah I think something that you mentioned there is the concept of riding a wave which actually touches on a previous interview that we did with uh, one of the founders of Holochain Matthew Schutte who was like a big wave surfer and um, also some of the metaphors we, we discussed in terms of um, this idea of learning how to interact with in, in a graceful manner the emergent structures of nature that are so much more powerful than we realize or that we might like to admit. So like, you know, riding a wave is a perfect example of that because the surfer doesn't get to control the majority of the variables that, that they're given on that wave. They get to decide whether they want to attempt to ride it or not and then they're along for the ride. Mother Nature is going to do with that wave what it will and they get to interpret and react creatively given the constraints of that that powerful force and I think part of what you're doing here correct me if if I'm wrong or you disagree with this is is kind of trying to surface the idea of time as this powerful force that we can change our relationship to and figure out you know more effective ways to to surf Mm mm-hmm yeah, that's super interesting. Like the wave metaphor is really good, right? It's really good because it does capture that juxtaposition of the ephemeral and the eternal, mm-hmm. right? Because like the ocean's been lapping against these beaches mm-hmm. for like for as long as there's been time itself, mm-hmm. right? And yet each wave is only there, cresting for this brief moment, right? And so there's this interesting juxtaposition there. And and to say like what you were talking about, like kind of uh, this understanding of things whooshing up. Right, the Greeks had this idea too, and Brian, you and I have talked about yeah, this a couple phises. times. But the physis or phusis, like this idea of this whooshing up and then enduring and then you know, kind of going away. Yeah. Um, this is something that we've known about as human beings. We've been thinking about. What did they usually associate that that concept with? Uh, everything. So you can think about like um, a crowd in a baseball game, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're just looking around and everyone's on their feet, right? You hear that crack of the bat, and then all of a sudden everybody's up on their feet. They're shouting and cheering. That just whooshes up, and it actually captures you. You're part of the wave, right? Like you are captured in that energy and brought into a place where you you kind of stood up of your own volition, yeah. but you kind of stood up in reaction to your environment. Like it your agency kind of gets blurred a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's because like an emerging crescendo of sorts. Yeah, you're caught up in it. And so there's positive ways of getting caught up in these things. There's getting caught up in a sports game. There's getting caught up here on a happy hour on a Friday when the conversation is just electric and mm-hmm. you just jump in, you're like, whoa, 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 I gotta I gotta inject something that I just read this week. <laughs> yeah. It's hyper relevant. Yeah. And I think maybe I read it so that I could offer this in this conversation. <laughs> like I've got this, like I've got this nagging feeling that that's what's happening. Um, and so there's this this sense we all have of being caught up in a moment, of being caught up in this this physis, this whooshing up. Um, but then there's also like you know the negative whooshing up, which happens you know when you see people that are like rioting, mm-hmm. um, when you see unrest, when you see people who are being like, um, God, just being out of tune. Yeah, or just like a lot of evil, like right, yeah. a lot of like mass yeah. group or, evil kind of also. Does, I was randomly, or I was listening to uh, the interview, I think it was Joe Rogan and Howard Bloom were speaking recently. It was a really wonderful interview, and Howard Bloom um, 
goes through this series of outlining his, you know, he's an absurdly eccentric and, and brilliant individual yeah. and was a producer for, you know, everyone from like Michael Jackson to, you know, I forget exactly who else, but like, um, yeah, like it, I never knew this, but John Mellencamp, Mellencamp, yeah. John Mellencamp, yeah. and like all these people. He's very like, close with Michael Jackson. What? Now, and now he's like into cosmology, whatever. But, oh, his, yeah. but the, the thing about his this experience, his story, and I would recommend everybody listen to this interview because it was an astounding interview. Um, he speaks about what interested him him in this domain was this experience in high school, in which he, as like a total nerd and someone who wasn't really accepted figured out kind of like how to dance and like just like went crazy at this one like high school dance in front of the rest of the class and like everybody looked at him in a different way and got caught up in that moment and like got on this same page and uh, lost their sense of self-identity and he describes like seeing their pupils dilate and a feedback loop emerging between him and the crowd and losing himself in the feedback loop and having an out-of-body experience above this. And like he describes it, I suppose, as being connected to the ecstatic experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he not only describes that, he also describes this in the context of being interested in, for example, how Hitler came to power, Mm -hmm. right? So there's this duality of this understanding of this deep power within the universe. And... um, and how that impacts our lives and whether it can be, you know, how it's directed is so, so critically important to, um, to that, how, how that pattern, um, or how our knowledge of that pattern manifests itself, I suppose. Yeah, there's a certain amorality to it, right? Like, it's kind yeah. of like um, morality agnostic. Yeah. Um, but, but it's a real thing. So, like, my background, you know, some of my background, I've got a serpentine uh, <laughs> trajectory, which you guys know about and I can talk about later if it's relevant. I think that but, connects but, us all. But part of it, yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Yeah. That's how are you weird, right? Um, one of the questions I always ask here on Friday evenings is, how are you weird? There's other bars you could be at. Like, yeah. you love this bar. I also love this bar. I love this bar partially because I'm weird. How are you weird? <laughs> Let's connect on that. Um, but, but part of my background is in performing mm-hmm. music. And, and any musician will tell you that one of the... You know, it's kind of a mistake probably to call it an instrument in the orchestra, but like the audience plays a massive role because there is like, you know, I'm tempted to use like energic metaphors, right? But like all of us here in this room are very sensitive to the metaphors we use to understand the world. So I say that with the caveat of, I don't know, I'm using the energic metaphor because it's the most, it's the most elucidating one um, at arm's reach, but there's this give and take between the audience um, and, and the performer where it's like you, there are nights where you just feel like the connections being made. Maybe it is that we're seeing on some subconscious level, the pupils dilate. Maybe that's yeah. exactly what it is. Maybe we're seeing people's feet tap. Maybe we're watching the way they sway and we're like, they're into it. They get it. And then that makes me perform better because I know they're into it, right? Performance is really important. It's really important to know what kind of, again, tempting these energic metaphors, but like there's an energy that is either there or it's not there. And it's real important. In fact, Brian, when you gave that talk, couple of weeks ago down at the NASA Ames campus for the Carnegie Mellon University satellite campus, yeah. um, which was an amazing talk on exponential divination, right? Yeah. I love Cybernetic this. divination. Cybernetic divination. I thought this was an amazing talk. I had my mind blown when you did this. Um, but one of the things that, you know, I was, you told me on a Friday that you were doing this and I said, yeah. do you have a nodder? Yeah. Yes. And you said, what's a nodder? And I said, oh, you need to have a plant in the audience who sits right in front of you and is like really nodding their head and super into what you're saying. 
Yeah. So that at any point, if you feel like you're losing the audience, you yeah. look at your friend, the plant, the knotter, and and he's just like, oh yeah, great yeah, point. Yeah, like yeah, you know, yeah. this isn't getting caught in the audio, but I'm nodding my head. Yeah. I'm gesticulating wildly, um, sure. and and that really kind of helps you feel connected mm -hmm. and it brings the best out of you and so mm -hmm. it's, it's you know it's a it's a moral use of a plant in an audience for a performance yeah so th there's something to that for public speaking there's something to that for dancing yeah like in front yeah. of a crowd and then of course you know being a guitarist and a singer like definitely like when people are into it well, we can think about how does that analogy apply to innovation itself. Like we are in San Francisco, Silicon Valley. Everyone's like fighting, competing with each other for the next little innovation that will drive the needle forward. When the reality is, if we were to actually just think about more open collaboration, we could solve some of the problems we're attempting to try and solve. Like that. I mean, it's. I mean, not not everything is a snap of the finger, but this idea of we are on the same page with each other we're trying to reach the same goal we have the same destination in mind the destination may be of no destination but still some directionality to the evolution we want to see in in our lives in the world and to be in sync with the others through which this evolution evolution occurs is key yeah i think that's i mean for me so i'm from chicago and i moved to the west coast because i saw this cooperation firsthand it was just amazing to me. I think I came out on a couple of visits and I was telling people what I was working on philosophically and what I was working on my, with my writing. And immediately people were like, oh, I know three people you should have coffee with. And I was like, wait, why are you doing this? Yeah. You have nothing to gain from this. You work in the tech field or you're working in a creative sphere. And, and there's really, why would you spend time? Like you're, yeah. uh, you know, you're, your time is precious. It's limited and you're like an executive. Why would you be spending time sending me warm intros to like philosophy buddies ears? But people did. It was really amazing and it changed my life in like a lot of ways. And I started to realize that out here there's this, this cooperative tendency to really open up not just your Rolodex, but kind of like your mind. Yeah. Like you share things, like things are being shared, they're kind of thrown out there. People are just kind of like, there's an openness out here that I really, yeah. really resonates with me. Um, and, and Law Now kind of is, is a good constellation for that stuff because, you know, we've got 10,000 members across like 62 countries right now. And, and part of what I've been doing in cultivating these, these gatherings here at the Interval on Friday nights and then the receptions after our, our seminar series once a month is really finding ways of connecting all these amazing people to all these amazing people. You know, um, as, the uh, as the Director of Development for Long Now Foundation, I have the unique privilege of meeting all of these people that come to Long Now. Um, who resonate and connect to these ideas, um, and they're amazing. I mean, it's like it's and it runs the gamut from people who are, you know, uh, glass blowing artists who are doing amazing work to people who are working in artificial intelligence to people who are working in genomic technology and molecular technology, um, in everything in between. Right? We have got everything from designers to authors to poets. Um, I get to meet all of them, and I was like, I recognized immediately like this is where communities get their momentum from, yeah yeah is you connect these people and you say like oh you're an author and i'm a machine intelligence expert yeah. and i'm a designer and we're going to have a conversation that's constellated by this idea of thinking in deep time mm -hmm. yeah so I, th I think there's there's a deep thread there that we're we're talking about like and we're getting at from multiple angles and one of the things that you said with respect to when you moved here from chicago is this this reaction to seeing how people were willing to quote unquote spend their time helping you or, or connecting you to other individuals for apparently no reason. Um, another way of looking at it is, is instead of spending, investing time, yes. right? And, yes. and that's also deeply related to this notion of time preference, right? And for people who aren't aware of the concept of time preference, it's 
this notion of you know how soon do you expect a return on you know, your actions, uh, the investment of your actions, or how you spend your time, and so much of, of uh, so many of the systems that we are in which we find ourselves embedded are focused on these much shorter term uh, or much lower time preference or much higher time preference actions, right? Where it's like, if I can't see a way of getting something out of this uh, activity or the way I'm spending my time within the next day, within the next week, within the next month, then I'm going to write it off as not worth it. But I think one of the things that, that undermines or, or precludes is exactly what you're talking about with respect to being able to figure out how all of these different types of people, whether they're artists or whether they're technologists or whether they're um, involved in, you know, um, science and research in some way, how all of those threads weave together, you can only start seeing that picture of how they weave together if you extend your time horizons and, and lower your time preference because it's just, it's such a complex picture that you're not going to be able to pull that apart or you're not going to be able to get a, a good sense of, of how these people uh, interact with one another and create this collective value or cooperative value over an interval of a week or a month or even a year. It takes 10, 15, 20 years to have some of these types of deep projects that are fully transformative. Um, you know, not only take seed or take root, but, but grow into something visible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the consequences of these broad temporal frameworks that we advocate for, right? Putting yourself in this civilization scale time period. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when you broaden those things, your empathy really expands, yeah. right? Because this begins to include people that came long before you were here, and it begins to include people that are going to be here long after you've been here. And so it changes your decision structure in the present moment. The actual effects of long-term thinking are felt in the present moment in the way that you manage your resources or manage your time or manage your friendships. Um, and, and yeah, so your empathy expands. And, and I forget who said it. I think it might have been our board member, Paul Sappho, mm-hmm. talked about the fact that when you're doing long-term thinking, like real long-term thinking and planning and like kind of preserving possibilities for the future, um, you, you find out that like being altruistic is actually the most selfish thing you can do. Um, in, in the end, in the final analysis, to, in order to save yourself, you have to save the whole world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you have this thing where these things that we normally think of as altruistic, you're doing for others, you're actually doing for yourself on long time scales. Um, so th- it's not just like, a, and it's not just something that catalyzes empathy, but it also catalyzes altruism. So yeah. when you take broader frameworks, you know, and this is definitely a pro-broad framework argument, right? Um, we're kind of in the business of saying, you're thinking too small. Like think bigger, mm-hmm. like why not? Why can't you think broader than that? Like right. let's keep let's keep pushing this because a lot is gained in that, right? And so our modern society it's kind of pushing you in the other direction. Mm-hmm. You know, most incentive structures are pushing you to care about what's happening now. If you start a project, people want to know what your results were, how successful you were. Right, most like the next quarter, right? Like what are the KPIs uh, for the next quarter? Yeah, the next <laughs> like quarter. How, how many how many attract how many people are driven by that attractor? Yeah, yeah. or like right. you know, people who are long term thinkers <clears throat> are thinking into the next election cycle, and we're still yeah. within a decade, right? <laughs> yeah. So you know, when you think about decades and centuries and millennia, you start looking out, and it really kind of changes. It's just it changes the way you think about the world, changes the way you act in it, um, and there's not a whole lot of opportunities to do that. So really, we're in the business of creating opportunities mm-hmm. creating you know for some people it's a visit to the clock that's really what's going to ground them in a sense of wow i'm part of something huge yeah. something long and lively it's been mm-hmm. going on for ten thousand years i am the inheritor of all of that and i am now passing it on to ten thousand more years of human civilization like so wow what are my responsibilities for some people that's their moment for some people it's coming to the speaking series that we do here in san francisco once a month hosted by Stuart brand our board chair and founder um, and for some people it's coming to the bar 
It's having a <laughs> cocktail. It's saying, yeah, I'll take an absinthe on the rocks. And <laughs> I'm going to turn to my friend. Cheers. And we're going to talk about really where we are yeah. in time and in mm-hmm. space and how we can expand our sense of space to include the big here mm-hmm. and how we can expand our sense of time to include the big now. Yeah. Eno talks about this notion of a senius as the well. The long now. Jesus, I just said big now. The big here. Well, the now long is now. both big super, and, I was just and super, long. I was staring into my absinthe and <laughs> reflecting and got lost. <laughs> Sorry. The big here and the long now. He also, But he talks about senius, right? Where genius is not one person. It's a scene coming together. And the long now very much is, is facilitating that scene. It's holding space for all these ideas to... It's the milieu. It's, it's a, I, I was thinking about that as well in the same way that there's this... Um, and this overview effect that is, you know, the the subjective report or experience of astronauts who have seen the world from space uh, and realize the fragility of the planet and, and all of those who inhabit it. You know, there's this other element with respect to to time that that you guys are are facilitating in terms of creating an, a new conceptual space for people to play in, right? Like we can come into this new space of leaving the work week in which everybody's been constraining what's possible based on what is uh, extremely likely and highly pragmatic over the next week or month or whatever, and actually start to play a little bit with like, well, what, what if we start thinking about 10, 20, 50, 100, 1,000, 10,000 years? You know, what is possible? Like, what could one accomplish? Or what could one, you know, what could one seed? What types of, what could, what types of technological or educational or cultural gardens might one grow and you know everybody says you know the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the second best time is is today right but even planting a tree requires a certain uh, breadth of temporal wisdom mm-hmm. yeah and planting a tree that you know under which the shade you're never going to experience yeah exactly is, is yeah. a super altruistic act <laughs> yeah. right yeah but it's also the ultimate expression of long-term thinking and yeah. so there is something to be said for you know it's not hard to understand why people don't think on a hundred year time scale, a thousand year time scale, because your agency on a hundred years or a thousand years seems negligible because you can't, you're not going to be there for it, right? Barring the life extension stuff that we can talk about separately, like barring radical life extension, you're not going to be here to see the completion of a project that takes 400 years. Mm -hmm. So does that mean, okay, so bracket that. There are challenges to human civilization that need to be addressed on a 400 year time scale, Mm -hmm. right? And so, if we take that as a given, a priori, there are challenges that are 100-year challenges, then we need yeah. to develop thinking on a 100-year time scale. And it's not surprising why we're not there, but that's because our culture really tells you that if you start something, you have to complete it. And that you have to wear it as a feather yeah. in your cap to get to the next step in your career. Because There's, we won't measure it unless you have an output. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, what happens if you just, what, you know, if I told you you had to solve world hunger in five years, mm-hmm. like, you can't do it. There's, you just you don't even know what to do. Yeah. Like it's an impossible task. Yeah. Um, but if I or say, you might even generate solutions that are destructive in the long term. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because you're kind of miscalibrated, right? Um, like the, the level of thinking isn't equal to the level of problem, right? You're not on the same plane um, conceptually. But if I told you you had 500 years to solve world hunger, you'd probably at least know the first three phone calls you'd make. You know the emails you'd send. You'd know who you'd go grab dinner with and talk about it. Um, because you wouldn't feel that same anxiety and pressure to be like, wow, I have to solve world hunger. You'd be like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to solve world hunger, um, but I'm going to get the ball rolling. Yeah. And then it's kind of like planting a tree, right? You put a tiny little seed in the ground, and then this mass appears mm-hmm. over time. 
or like a snowball. You you know, you kick a snowball down a mountain. I think I've used yeah. that metaphor. Yeah. And then at the bottom, it's you know gargantuan. Yeah. It's the same idea that like if you do the right things of the project, if you set it up in the right way, um, and you provide possibilities for the next people, um, you don't constrain them. Then it can snowball. It can build on itself. It can start to accrete and accrue. Um, heft momentum maybe, yeah right like it just a uh, gravitas mm-hmm. like there's a certain thing but like that that second <laughs> part that trusting the yeah. future yeah coherence that second part that the part where you trust the future mm-hmm. and you provide them with as many possibilities as you can is really core to what how we advocate for thinking long term right yeah. because one of the ways you can think long term is like you know we you know uh, you know you brought i think you brought up hitler earlier so i don't think i'm breaking godwin's law here uh you broke it already but like uh, the idea of the, technically the, howard bloom broke it and i just ported that into the conversation fair, fair. <laughs> but this idea this idea of the thousand year reich right yeah this idea that you can yeah. have bad long-term thinking right it's not just think long-term and we're completely agnostic about it it's it's this idea it's this idea that instead of saying i have a vision that i want to make real for a thousand years and people should be constrained and bound to this vision um it's more like i have no idea what the next thousand years hold like literally the world's changing so much just within our lifetimes right this is kind of like it's almost becoming cliche to, to mention this but like I don't think it can be emphasized enough how strange and anomalous this is yeah. for human beings to be in this condition, right? Like, this is really interesting. Um, but, like, so I don't know what it's going to be like in the next hundred years, the next thousand years. Um, and so the last thing I want to do is constrain that next generation with a project that I started and say, you must finish it the way I envisioned finishing it, right? Mm-hmm. There's, um, yeah, there's some really interesting uh, podcast I listened to recently about the Hershey's fortune and how it's like, basically the will of the dude who died and left the Hershey's foundation like was so restrictive. It was like dealing with like um, <laughs> men who were out of work. They were teenagers. Like anyways, I can't tell the whole story. Like the right? minutia of, of everything. But yeah, but it was, it was just restricting what yeah, the what people who were running this foundation yeah. in the present day yeah. were able to do. Um, you want to preserve possibilities yeah. for people to give them maximum degrees of freedom. Yeah. You want people to be able to kind of react and adapt to the environment that they mm-hmm. find themselves in acknowledging that the landscape and the environment change and they mm-hmm. shift. Yeah. Um, and so rather than predicting it, you just kind of provide them with possibilities and you trust them. So you're handing them the baton and you're in the best possible condition and you're saying, okay, cool, your turn now. Mm-hmm. And I trust you to finish it. Like I trust that you're going to do it. And I think the challenge then for those of us who are starting these projects or like myself, people who are in the middle of this in this transition period is really to make sure that, or to kind of shine a light on the truth in the work. The, why this is important because I think if you show if you're able to show if people see why what you're doing is important why that baton is worth mm-hmm. carrying across the next distance they're going to show up it's yeah. going to connect with someone yeah. you're going to get that loop like with the audience right yeah. they're going to establish that I never yeah. thought about that yeah, you're yeah. totally right yeah, it man. is exactly the audience feedback loop yeah. but on a broader time scale yeah. mm-hmm. you nailed it that's totally it <laughs> that's really good I'm now going to steal that from every other podcast <laughs> I'm on <laughs> good I mean, it's not—it's not stealing. It's cooperative generation of. Uh, I'll give you full credit. Of, of novel, novel conceptual attractors or something like that. Totally, but that's it. That really is it. It's—it's it's, it's, wow. I never really thought about the broadening of this concept of the audience. Mm-hmm. That your audience across time yeah. also becomes people who like weren't born when you started. I mean, think about it. When I, when I was in sixth grade, that's when they started the clock. Mm-hmm. That's nuts. Yeah. I think at that point nobody ever thought 
Somewhere is a sixth grader. <laughs> Somewhere is a sixth grader <laughs> who's going to go through again that serpentine yeah. career trajectory. Yeah, yeah. I exactly. went through and then find myself here and be like, yes, this is my calling. This yeah. is what I want to do and commit yeah. my life's work to. Like, that's nuts, but but it was true. It was it was true in '96. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that's kind of wild to think. Right now, we're yeah. having this conversation um, that we're kind of thinking of releasing on the internet so people can enjoy it. It's in the beginning phases of your new project with C squared. Like it's at you know, um, uh, yeah, it's like at this particular anchored time. Mm-hmm. But truthfully, we should hold space for this conversation resonating with nobody right now. Mm-hmm. It's good but, enough. But just with but us. somebody <laughs> but somebody in the future at a time we don't know finding this conversation and being like oh this is the conversation and it's weird right <laughs> when you have authors like I have, like, like tracing the seeds back in Namaste. time of, yeah of and I've had works. you know obviously I'm sure all creators all authors have their favorite works that they're like yeah sure. this is what I want my legacy to be but of course like we if we throw authorial intent to the side like you have the situation which I've resonated with people's minor works before mm-hmm. like right it's like some of my favorite works are that artist's minor works yeah yeah um, and so like we may think that like this isn't the grand conversation it might not be this may not be a conversation that goes viral maybe it does if, if you're listening to this because it went viral that's awesome <laughs> that's awesome just know we didn't know this in advance um, but if it doesn't go viral the and, it just kind of, and, it, and it kind of like it breaches the surface and then it comes back down underwater but somebody finds it in a hundred years mm-hmm. in a yeah. thousand years and it resonates and it lights them up it's like that's the kind of time scales we're dealing with. That's the audience you're mm-hmm. dealing with when you're yeah. thinking about long term. Mm-hmm. This reminds me, I guess, of a couple things. Um, one is a conversation I recently had with Jordan Greenhall. Um, he's uh, a, a thinker. He, he does a lot of work in terms of um, well, a lot of things, but thinking about individual sovereignty as a framework, thinking about the evolution of technology, thinking about the complex domain of evolution. Um, but we had this conversation, and he like he used this term that I really liked, which was um, generative bat signaling. So basically putting these signals out there into the environment that they don't necessarily, so, so much of what we optimize for in terms of our, of our broadcast is, 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 is just that. It's a broadcast. It's, okay, look at the metrics of how many people you reached um, as if it's this singular number or this uh, equal, you know, equally distributed impact when in reality you're actually reaching out to a, a distinct graph of individuals and you know, reaching the right people might be far more important at a given moment in time than reaching a much larger number of people. And so there's this element of generative bad signaling that activates people's minds and then draws them together and coheres them into something that can then overcome the activation energy and like create like this fission reaction and and then and that basically creates well in theory if you think of like the initial fission reaction of a star what happens it, it basically turns into this massive gravitational attractor right and then that creates an entire solar system around it and life and, and and new perspectives and so you know this also reminds me of this other conversation that we had here a few maybe I don't know a few hap, uh, maybe a couple months ago at a happy hour where we were talking about the long now as an attractor. The long now as this idea of an attractor through time, where you didn't know that you know you were going to fall into its orbit when you were when you were in sixth grade. I didn't know that I was going to fall into its orbit when I moved to San Francisco. You know, I don't know if you. I Brian, did. I did. I literally showed. I was like, hey, nice. Yeah, but yeah, it's. Well, I mean, if you know more power to you, right? But it's this interesting idea of how do we create the right attractors? How do we create the right patterns that create? They had sent those bat signals out. I had already yeah. received. Yeah, you'd them. Received, That's received so nice. I signal. love it. There's, I love this phrase, generative bat signaling, because I, I wonder about this again. Because 
getting to meet all these people, like one of the things you realize is like, I, I joked earlier about like, how are you weird? Right? Like, how did you end up here? Like, what, yeah. what in the hell brought you here? Like, there are so many other bars in San Francisco, right? And they're more accessible. Like, we're in Fort Mason Center yeah. for Arts and Culture on the yeah. North Waterfront. It's like, on the fringe. I, I had to find a novel form of transportation to get up here. Like, it's not just, like, in the main area of town. You don't... Yeah. We, we get walk-ins from the restaurant, but for the most part, people, this is a very intentional place to get to, and people seek it out. And then when they meet other people, and they have conversations like this one, and this is not a... You know, for everybody listening, this is not an uncustomarily uh, far-reaching conversation mm-hmm. for us. Like, this is kind of oh, this on is pace. Satisfied. Yeah, we, it's kind of on pace for like we get which, right into it. <laughs> which, which isn't, which also yeah. isn't to brag. It's just really. If to anything, describe, we're tempering ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which isn't to brag. It's really just to describe um, veridically what happens here. Like, yeah. this is just this is the kind of conversation that attracts the kind of people who like having this kind of conversation here at a bar. Um, and, and I'm always just blown away that there's more than just me because for the majority of my life, I was the person who really wanted to have this conversation. And I was the person who sometimes would, if you put enough drinks in me, I would harangue in bars <laughs> about <laughs> metaphysics and mm-hmm. deep time yeah. and our responsibilities of future generations <laughs> and reflexivity and all the things that like, we have these conversations all the time, coherence, emergence, right? Um, and yeah, I think that bat signal thing happens where all of a yeah. sudden you find yourself and you're like, oh, oh, I was following that star here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something really amazing about that. But then also just like, there's a responsibility to that. Because then when you show up, it's like, well, why is this here? Well, it's here because people stewarded it until you got here. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do? Well, in my case... I'm stewarding it until the next guy gets here. Um, because, again, if we're going to be an organization for 10,000 years, I'm not the last development director. I'm one of the development directors, right? Mm-hmm. And there's going to be another one. And realistically, let's think about it. I'm going to meet him at a happy hour. Also, for everybody <laughs> listening about a happy hour, yeah. it's really like happy hours. Uh, it yeah. starts around like 4.30 on Fridays here at the interval, and, and we goes. do it until the bar closes. So, I mean, <laughs> I've, I've told a couple of people, oh, you should come for a happy hour. And they're like, oh, I'm not going to be free to like 7. I'm like, oh, no, that's still happening. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like the beginning of happy hours. Totally but this is slowly accreting this group of people that my hope is that if, if you were led here and it felt like the right place for you to land, there's a responsibility there to help keep it going. Yeah. And... and Everybody I meet and talk to, including you guys, has said to me at some point, like, cool, how do I help? How do I help keep this going, right? And so you guys, like, we would talk, and then you're like, okay, cool, yes, let's do that. Let's make that happen. And that's amazing. And, like, I fundamentally believe that if you're sending out a authentic enough generative bat signal, that enough people are going to come to make sure the torch doesn't go out. Mm-hmm. I don't think torches go out when people care about the torch being lit up. And so the real challenge for someone like myself in development work isn't so much collecting checks and doing fundraising and out shaking hands and all that kind of thing. That's a piece of it, and I think for a lot of organizations, that's it. That's a lot of it. Um, it's really saying, on a 10,000-year time scale, you don't, you don't solely focus on checks. Mm-hmm. You also focus on people who care about keeping the torch burning because no amount of money keeps something burning. Mm-hmm. Right? Look, at, look at the decline of religion in our day. It's not because religion ran out of money necessarily. It, it declined for a lot, a complex host of reasons. Yeah. Um, you ultimately stopped resonating. Yeah, yeah. and so if it resonates, the loop breaks. People, yeah, so the bat mm. signal, the bat signal got foggy yeah. or something. Yeah. You know yeah. what well, I mean? I mean I the really loop know. with the audience, that scaled audience across time, starts breaking down or eroding for one reason or another, and, and yeah. you, you no longer you no longer get that kind of like feedback that keeps it 
you know, that keeps it coherent, keeps the resonance, keeps the keeps the torch lit, keeps the meaning strong within the hearts of the people. Yeah, so but I want, I want to, this is a perfect time for me to interject with something that I, I think I've talked to you guys about, but this idea that, you know, we're the Long Now Foundation and we were founded in 1996, right? Um, but, but is that the whole story? And is that really the right beginning, right? Like that's kind of like the personal branding narrative. Like, oh yeah, we, we got a tax identification number. <laughs> that's what happened. But the truth is like, I see Long Now Foundation is carrying a torch that's millennia old, yeah, yeah. which is this idea of broad frameworks, of seeing yourself juxtaposed against this expansive greatness mm-hmm. that is so awe-inspiring mm-hmm. that the only thing you can do is recognize your own responsibility yeah. to keep and maintain this condition that generated the awe for you. Mm-hmm. So it's generative bat signaling on a metaphysical level. Like, Long Now isn't the first organization to do that. Like, humanity has had institutions, and a lot of them are religious or, like, in the case of, like, the university systems, right? Yeah. Oxford's also been doing this for a long time. Keeping this torch burning of long-term thinking, like, we're kind of inheriting a baton of our own and keeping it going. So there's a sense in which, you know, is our mission to keep the tax ID number around for 10,000 years? Mm-hmm. Or is it to foster long-term thinking in such a way that long-term thinking lasts effectively forever? Um, I think that's the mission. And I think then you don't care so much about just the donations and the fundraising. You also have to really care about, are we getting people to think long-term and is that bat signal bright and shiny? Mm-hmm. Like, is that bat yeah. signal just attracting the hell out of intelligent, curious, expansive thinkers from all around the country and bringing them here? to All around see- the world. There's been yeah. global, there's people that show up from all parts of the world. Yeah, 62 countries you have members in, yeah. yeah. So it's so like this idea of like, when you look at the big here, like, how are we bat signaling to the big here that, like, hey, look, there's a place that's just focused on getting people to think long-term, to expand your temporal framework so that you see yourself as part of something really long-lived. Um, I think it's powerful. And I actually, I've got ridiculous amounts of hope that this project is it's going to happen. Like, you know, I don't think the torch it's is happening. Like, We're part yeah, of it happening. I don't think the torch is going out. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? And so, you know, I got I'll sit on panels or I'll have conversations with people here at the bar and they'll talk about humanity and what we're doing to the ecosystem, what we're doing to the environment, we're heating up the planet, the plastics in the oceans. Like, we have so many reasons to be dour about our future prospects. But I think there's actually also a lot of reasons to be really hopeful. In fact, Danny Hillis, our founder and the designer and, uh, you know, originator of the clock idea, Danny recently said at a TED conference, um, and I've heard him say it before, he said it in a couple of other things, but, you know, I'm not optimistic because our challenges, I think our challenges are small and surmountable. I'm optimistic because I think our ability to yeah, address these exactly. challenges is, is significant beyond belief. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm not quoting him verbatim yeah. there, but I think that idea is really, po- yeah. I, I, it resonates with me. That's, that's his back yeah. signal but, to me. Yeah, I think yeah. deep time in general provides that framework, right? That, that framework that hedges against cynicism. Mm-hmm, that that mm-hmm. gives you this ability to understand that, okay, you know, we did some things. We started some we started some wheels in motion, uh, in terms of our economy and in, in terms of particular patterns of how we use resources uh, and how we relate to nature. And you know, we're we're starting to see that those aren't sustainable, and we are starting to see some you know we're starting to see damage, and we're starting to see the fact that you know that that those patterns could do a lot of harm to things we care deeply about, not just ourselves as a species, but one of the beautiful parts about humanity is the fact that we can, we can empathize with a fish. We can empathize with a dolphin. We can empathize, we can empathize with creatures that are not at all like us. And we are, and we're improving things. It's just, you know, it takes a little while to right the ship. And if you think 
if you are operating under, you know, I don't want to use language that is too strong, but if you're operating under the delusion that something that is that that has that much inertia behind it can be changed within a five to ten year time horizon or based on the election of a president that you happen to like for this one particular election cycle or that one a president that you dislike is the end of the world um, you are going to be far more susceptible to uh, this cynicism or this pessimism uh, in terms of the perspective of what humanity is capable of or mm -hmm. how much we can channel that creativity that, that I think you're referring to and and that's something that I think at least in my in my own personal life that's what long-term thinking in an in a intimate relationship with deep time has done for me it's yeah. given me this ability to look at humanity despite our lumps and bumps and mistakes and you know rough edges and the fact that we hurt each other and sometimes ourselves and the planet that overall we are moving in a direction that seems to be constantly improving constantly creating more empathy more opportunity more more creativity more beauty more love and and that's really inspiring to me but i think it only comes with a sense of deep time mm -hmm. yeah you're right. Actually, I, I hadn't thought about this, but the idea of a constrained temporal framework, like thinking like, oh my God, this president's you know, it's the end of the world, mm -hmm. right? It kind of forces a certain impetus on you to act, oh, to yeah. do something oh, dramatic, yeah. right? And I yeah. think like, you know, I forget who said it, but the idea of like, instead of saying, you know, you hear people say, don't just sit there, do something. I actually think thinking is like, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> like don't just go do it yeah. like take a breather yeah. go and meditate right yeah. like we've got some meditators yeah. in this room yeah. Yeah. I think are all of us meditators yeah, yeah. so yeah. so yeah it's like there's this idea of like sitting and thinking of nothing and there's also cogitation and reflection and yeah. it's like taking time to think it's so a long term thinking is a brand of thinking and thinking is a brand of not just doing something not just reacting but using something unique to us which is our ability to say is this the right way of framing the problem or the question? Mm -hmm. Is this the right way of responding with an answer? Um, maybe there's other, maybe there are some knobs that we can move a little bit that help us find answers that are more satisfactory and actually lead to, in the present moment, a more adaptive response to the environment, right? If the environment's throwing you 500-year challenges mm -hmm. and you're meeting those 500-year challenges with five-year thinking, mm -hmm. you're not adapting. Nope. You're probably adding more chaos to the stack. Totally. So if you want to adapt to a world that's throwing you big problems, you've got to have big thinking. Mm -hmm. And long now is trying to engender that or create excuses for people to say like, okay, cool, wow. Everything else in my environment is telling me i got to worry about this quarter or this election cycle or this press cycle or whatever, um, but I'm going to take a Friday. And I'm going to meet people. And whatever it is we're talking about, we're going to think about it in the context of the next 10,000 years and the last 10,000 years. Um, and so, and that includes everybody. That includes the designers. That includes the artificial intelligence folks. That includes the researchers and scientists and the authors and the novelists. Like everybody comes together under there and goes, "Cool. So, how do we make a really bright bat signal? Yeah. <laughs> how do we make it, but a bat signal for civilization, so we can keep doing this? Mm -hmm. like, this has been a great ride. I've had a great time of it. Yeah. And I, you know, we want it to keep going. And there are some looming challenges at the gate. Yeah. Things like climate change. Things like becoming an interplanetary species, yeah. like right on long time scales. These are things that, yeah, you can get those started now, and some people are, um, but they're not going to provide you that same satisfaction of starting a project and finishing it and then getting on the price cycle when you're done with it. Mm -hmm. um, so, how do we incentivize that? Well, we're figuring that out. We're exploring. We're seeing what resonates with people and what works. For some people, it's the clock. For some people, 
sipping some 15 year single malt scotch here in the interval actually technically it's not scotch it comes from saint george spirits in alameda which is for the listeners out there arguably the best handcrafted distillery in the united states so nay good. the world they're yeah, so good so good i've been a fan of theirs since long before i ever went to go visit them in alameda yeah. but i love that they're partnered with long now on some of these projects because you know they, they distill in the ODV tradition mm-hmm. and ODV is a kind of this idea of like, instead of like distilling so that what's in your glass is the best tasting thing they're not mm-hmm. you know like a, like a chef's recipe i mm-hmm. want you i want your palate to dance on this right mm-hmm. they're kind of thinking it in a headier more conceptual way where you know i have this pear yeah. this pear is flesh and it's going to corrupt and it's ephemeral but if i can distill it it's no longer ephemeral it'll last from season to season to season it'll live on as a spirit Mm. What is the essence? What is the essence? How do we get the essence of it? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of love that idea because it's good long-term thinking of oh, yeah. Paris. And if it's good enough for Paris, <laughs> it's good enough for the rest yeah. of us. Like, if anybody's curious, we're not sponsored by St. George yet. <laughs> we're not, no, we're not. We're not. But they're, par- they're partners of ours, and I want to call it out because we had some of that scotch, or that, again, that single malt. The single malt and the yeah. absinthe as well. Yeah. And again, for some people, that's what it takes. Like some people, you tell them about 15 years of single malt, like we were talking about, right? And like how the angels share, you know, evaporates the capillary action through the wood. And so you end up with less of it and it's more scarce. And that's why you don't see a whole lot of fantastic aged, you know, uh, single malt whiskey on the, on the market. And like for some people, that's the thing to go, whoa, time, man. <laughs> yeah. When you expand your temporal framework, yeah, it really yeah. changes the, th- yeah. the way things flesh out. You were telling um, me the story of... Uh... Of, of picking what what was the uh, you get something from the mountain in which the long now clock uh, is gin. for the actual yeah. but you, you helped to create a gin with St. George and you go juniper pick berries. juniper berries there is that what you get there that is what we get there we do get juniper berries um, so it's an interesting so, connection right like walking along you know picking up juniper berries which is uh, you know, reminiscent of something that humanity has done since before we have history written history which is you know collecting gathering, foraging yeah. gathering gathering berries on this same property in which there's this highly technological creation and manifestation of your philosophy of deep time and that you can kind of weave those two threads together in a singular moment uh, that's something that I found rather beautiful when you told me about it mm-hmm. yeah I hadn't really thought about the hunter-gatherer uh, resonance <laughs> although although I should have am I stretching it <laughs> no not at all that's literally we just we just uh, we devolve to hunter gatherers when we get to the mountain uh, you're kind of camping out in the middle of nowhere for a couple of days so you're totally happy to see the juniper berries when you find it but no yeah um, that's all on our Nevada property so mm-hmm. Long Now originally had a uh, intended the clock to be installed inside of a mountain in Nevada mm-hmm. near uh, the Utah border uh, outside the Great Basin National Park mm. and Ultimately, that didn't end up being where the clock was going to be housed. It's in West Texas now. Mm-hmm. But that mountain is still, you know, we still have some property there, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's mm-hmm. absolutely gorgeous. It's a magical place. It, it's no mystery why they selected that to be the clock mountain, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's covered in these juniper berries, and these juniper berries are huge. Um, when they brought them back to St. George, it was, like, way bigger than the juniper berries <laughs> they bought. They come out of the juniper berries. So it's like they were blown away by it, and they made a gin for us, too, Yeah, which is great. So we have that here, too, which is kind of like, you know, we get to capture the essence of those juniper berries, the essence of that mountain, the essence yeah. of that idea and that yeah. project yeah. all kind of come together into a glass, which is weird. There's a synesthetic piece to this too, mm-hmm. but I don't think we really talked about it, and I haven't thought about it, so I can't really speak to it at length, but there's something about broad frameworks, including broad sensory frameworks, mm-hmm. where you can taste time yeah. in mm. an aged spirit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's also something alchemical about this. Yeah, or you can taste place when you're tasting, you know, this yeah. mountain juniper berry gin. 
yeah, there's a terroir to it. Like, there's something about that. So I wonder if, you know, in connecting to the broad frameworks, there's also this, like, yeah, the synesthetic element. That, yeah. Because we tend, I mean, synesthetically, you think about, like, space and time, right? Mm-hmm. Like, these are also, like, weirdly correlated things. When we talk about time, we use linguistic space things. We say, oh, ahead to next week. Yeah. Or behind the last week. Yeah. Or inside of this meeting. Yeah. So we still use spatial language yeah. to kind of understand time, which is interesting. So mm-hmm. and whether or not time, I mean, it's, it's still a topic of debate in terms of, you know, what time, you know, what, is it what foundational? Time, yeah. What, yeah. what time actually, does it exist in and of itself? Is it a thing in the universe or is it just a, uh, some sort of, uh, a residue of experience, right? A framework we create yeah. by way of existing, um, for longer than a singular moment, right? Like we have some sort of extrusion and through space, which we call time, um, and, and we lay this framework over our experience. And that's actually something, maybe maybe we should go into that to some extent, because that could be kind of fun to talk about in a way, um, in terms of like, we'd like to talk about paradigms. And you know, one massive paradigm was the invention of time uh, within our societies. The, the notion, and not only the invention of time, but also the evolutionary path through society uh, that that this concept of time took, and, and by time we mean non-cyclical time, we I mean, mean like arrow time. I mean, mean I mean, I mean more like arrow time, but I also mean like this increasing resolution. First of all, like the concretization of calendars through our our, our large-scale <laughs> civilizational development, yeah. and then secondarily, like understanding um, ways of measuring daily cycles, uh, variance in daily cycles, but also coordinating our social behavior around these different cycles and starting agriculturally, but then moving to something like, you know, we had the advent of clocks, but when clocks were invented, that that happened before watches and pocket watches existed or were accessible, accessible for most people. Mm-hmm. So there was, this, there was this coordination that happened in terms of town squares, but like it wasn't, it wasn't a, a tight coordination. It wasn't a tight cadence, so to speak. And now we are on the opposite end of the spectrum in which time is measured by the vibration of a an, a particular type of atom, right? Cesium. The cesium atom. Mm-hmm. And um, well, can, can we talk about how we got there? Yeah. No. So I, I'm just kind of trying to like yeah. paint so, the so, large so, scale so picture. So like, time, let's let's go into yeah. that. And so so speaking not as a time expert, I'm your humble development director. You're <laughs> still more of an expert than we are. But let me topic. let me take a crack at this because it seems relevant. Um, you know, you're looking at periods. You're looking at repetitive mm-hmm. patterns, right? You guys uh, were talking to me about crystals recently, right? As this periodic phenomenal pattern, periodic right? patterns yeah periodic patterns and so so let's, let's start there right like there's some patterns that everyone's familiar with they're human-centric patterns like day like your mm-hmm. like day and night yeah there like the go. cycles in which we're in cycle yeah exactly it's a cycle it's this moving between two po- points back and forth in a way that's predictable and regular right it's periodic but it's also like regular enough to be predictable right okay so so you have that like day day and night is an obvious one but then you have like senescence right like you kind of grow up you mature you become an adult in the community and then you have senescence you become old and you die and so that cycle is also something that's like apprehendable to like we'll call it primitive senses right like people who don't have access to technology can apprehend these rhythms and then you have like certain calendrical rhythms across the year so that's also not something that was foreign to people who didn't have technology, right? You have like the Mayans understood calendrical things like that. Um, so you're kind of moving through this. And what we realize technology is that if you want greater coordination, like if I said, hey guys, we should totally meet and do a podcast this afternoon. Yep. I have to hang around for a couple of hours 
because I don't know what afternoon is yeah. to you, and you're not wrong, and I'm not right, and it's like what? What is truth? And yeah. like, also, okay, basically, <laughs> yeah. what happens is yeah. we hopefully just meet up. That's the well, end that's goal. That sinking element, right? Like we are now so much on up. the same page. Well, yeah. So as we move from like like you know lifetime scales to annual scale to day scale, and then we start moving like sub day scale, yeah. right? We start moving down to like other periodic things like the vibration of a cesium atom right which is so fast it allows us to be very specific yeah. and build it so we actually kind of build our time like the time that we all deal with like hours meet me at five o'clock for dinner that all is built out of the vibration of a cesium atom right it's not derived out of like some celestial thing right it's actually these you want your intervals to get smaller so your resolution for time gets more precise mm-hmm. yeah and so so yeah so it's kind of crazy like and you why do you want that why do you want well, such co- I mean, coordination mechanisms, to coordinate right? yeah. and because coordinating has certain power advantages to it um you know you can do more with it in a technological sense when people are coordinated do you think that there's a either a point of diminishing returns with respect to resolution or uh, perhaps even negative returns like i yeah. often i often think about like um i mean part of why we are able to think on such narrow time scales is because they are so precise so that might be one reason, but then there are also other patterns such as, you know, I, I go back and forth on this idea of um, to what extent is it worthwhile having financial information about the underlying value of a company transacted at the sub or, you know, the microsecond scale? Like, is that actually valuable or are we just opening up a game space for those who wish to perhaps, you know, scrape some, scrape some off the top? based on patterns that might be like epiphenomenal or, mm-hmm. or, or not necessarily un, you know, representative of the underlying value. And we're seeing that now in terms of like, because we have you know, these hyper accurate timescales and devices that can operate on those very small timescales, there are things like flash crashes that can take the value generated by a multi, multi-generational phenomenon, perhaps a family business that's been around and been built and accreted as in our terminology, over multiple generations, which is this long-term thinking phenomena that has incorporated and woven itself into these deep patterns of humanity and created value. And then based on the, the artifices of some algorithms, its stock price can be driven to zero in, the, in, in a moment of, uh, you know, of, of feedback between algorithms that has nothing to do with the underlying structure of, of human value creation or reality. So that, that's... I don't know. What do you think about that? That's a lot. I, I'll just kind of leave it a little bit open-ended for you. Yeah. The first thing I'll say about that specific example you gave mm-hmm. is I think that puts us face-to-face with an interesting question, which is do you want to live in or create or sustain a world in which that's possible, where generations of effortful value creation mm-hmm. can be eliminated in the blink of an eye? Mm-hmm. And the question is Arbitrarily. Do, you have, do you have a choice? I would argue you do have some modicum of choice, same modicum of choice you always have, which is, you know, you choose the technologies you uh, endorse and you advance, right? Especially if you're a technologist. If you have the ability to advance technologies, you have a certain ethical uh, responsibility on your shoulders to advance technologies in a particular way. So, like, again, the ethical thing that I just introduced that we weren't previously talking about is also really closely linked to long-term thinking or thinking in general because what it is, it's 
not just sitting there and doing, going out and doing something, but saying, don't do something, sit and think about it. Like preserve space for ethics, right? And that's a Hans Jonas idea, who's a brilliant um, et, you know, philosopher of technology and ethics. Um, you know, he said like one of, the, one of the prime directives of an ethics of technology is to preserve a space in which ethics is still possible. Uh, if the space for ethics evaporates, then all kinds of other things evaporate too, right? And you, you know, kind of getting back to our original point about preserving possibilities for the future, you want your future to have a space possibility and you want there to be that ethical conversation that maintains. Um, so that's, that's directly to the idea of like this value evaporation idea. But, you know, again, like we get to choose, right? So Hans Jonas also said to get the proper view, you have to take the proper distance. Um, and then, you know, Mayor Luponti talked about an optimal grip. Like when you hold your water mm -hmm. glass, you get an optimal grip on it. Yeah. You seek an optimal grip. You work towards it. It shouldn't one. slip out of your hands, nor should you crush it. Yeah. And yeah. so like, how do you get an optimal grip on time? Um, and I think what an optimal grip on time would look like is it would look like the right distance for the right like challenge. Yeah. So there's a sense in which sometimes you are looking at like, you know, sub second yeah. kind of stuff. That's important, right? Like, um, mm -hmm. you know, you look at like kind of like the uh, healthcare data generation that's happening, right? When people are doing, you know, sticking AI on all this, you know, this plethora of data we have to find correlations that are gonna save people's lives. Oh God, you should definitely be looking at, you know, the finest resolution you can, because it's amazing. It might save yeah. a life. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if it evaporates, you know, the value that's been built up over generations, yeah. that's maybe not the right distance for that. Because that's maybe, maybe perhaps the difference is uh, the resolution can be used quite effectively within the right cooperative or intentional frameworks or ethical frameworks, right? Mm -hmm. But if you just open it up to um, total market dynamics that don't necessarily correlate at all with intentional ethics, then you create moral hazard. Yeah, I think, I think that's interesting. I think in that case, we've kind of, our concept of re time resolution is really closely linked to the concept of technology, yeah. qua technology, and that it is kind of morally neutral but also introduces problems. And we're more likely things. to see it as morally neutral. Like it's more, it's more morally neutral in some domains than others. Like for, the, for example, like we're more likely to see the financial domain as morally neutral than we are to see the medical domain because the correlation to someone's life is so much more salient, like psychologically, right? Mm -hmm. It's like if, if something, if I were to say, oh, well, yeah, we could have this heart monitor sample the heart rate at every millisecond, but we believe it's only ethical to do so every minute. It's obvious that there are many cases in which you know we will end up with patients dying. Yeah. Right? Whereas yeah. you know, in terms of something as abstract as the financial industry, it's very difficult to understand what the side effects of changing that time resolution is. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking less of like a convergent ethics, where like we agree that it's ethical to do X or ethical to do Y, and more about the idea of like preserving space. For the ethical conversation to take place where it's just it's just sitting and thinking it's really just thinking you know uh, ethical conversation is really just saying before you do the thing let's think about it let's talk about it um, and I think that's important it's a pausing and so it's this time out of time this stepping away which again you know that's kind of what we're in the business of doing we want to provide people with excuses to step away from standard time um, the standard way of doing things standard pace at which they're at and say you have permission in this moment to kind of think about things in a broader framework. Mm -hmm. So let's do it. Let's, you know, whether it's us having a conversation here tonight, um, 
Yeah, or whether it's a visit to the monument, whether it's reading an article about the Rosetta disk that was landed on Comet 67P in the fall of 2016, mm -hmm. um, or whether it's you know kind of researching and reading up on what's happening with uh, the de-extinction of the woolly mammoth or the passenger pigeon. Like if these things get you to think about like, yeah, wait, but what if in 100 years? Okay, cool, good. You're stopped, yeah. you're paused, you're thinking, yeah. you're doing that thing that's going to preserve possibilities for the future, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I think I mean the preservation is a uh, is a fascinating. Well, so there's I think a couple of things you just touched on are preservation and also accessibility. Something that I resonated quite a bit with in, in terms of the, the artifacts that are produced by the Long Now was the encoding of the world's languages upon uh, a like a disc, right? And I think that mm -hmm. was the disc that you just mentioned that was a nickel landed, disc, yeah, the Rosetta yeah, disc. Yeah, exactly, yeah. this Rosetta disc that you've created. Um, also in its in its smaller forms, um, I think you, you guys have kind of uh, there was a program by which you could get like a smaller form of this. Disc. We did a wearable version. Yeah, yeah but the, the the fascinating part about this disc to me was that like, and you call it the Rosetta disc, obviously mm -hmm. with the intentional allusion to the Rosetta Stone. Uh -huh. um, but I think the way that you've done it is so much more elegant in the sense that um, not only are there far more languages that you've included, but for anybody who's listening to this, you should. You should look at this on the Long Now's website because, you know, it's it's done in a way where it spirals from from text that is legible to the human eye down into text that is at a extreme like a you know, microscopic scale to say the least. I'm not mm -hmm. exactly sure how it's a nanoscale. Each page nanoscale. of language documentation is five human hairs wide. Yeah, which is absolutely amazing and absurd simultaneously. Boggles the <laughs> mind, um, but it's also I really liked it as a metaphor for self-revealing knowledge in a way, right? Where you can look at the, the symbol, you can look at the artifact and read it with your human eye. You see that there's information there. And even if we were to blow ourselves up and come back to that artifact, we still have our eyeballs, right? And um, even if we didn't have any of the technology that would allow a deeper understanding of what was there, we would see that there's something there beyond mm. what we know, something that transcends our current mm. uh, ability, right? And so, in a way, it's almost like this propedeutic that, like, that, like introduces you to the idea that there is more to be discovered, um, even if perhaps it no longer exists. And and then you you develop a new form of microscope or a magnifying glass to to look at this weird little little artifact, mm. and then you realize, oh shit, there's still more, like someone knew how to create information at an even smaller scale. And now like I have to go beyond the magnifying glass to a microscope and I create the microscope. and I'm like, holy shit, there's still more. It's like, it's this amazing way of encoding knowledge that not only encodes the explicit knowledge itself, but also the extent to which the society that created it was able to, you know, anticipate, that. anticipate that and act on matter and space and time in a way that, that might not be obvious to those who discover it, whether they be aliens or a future version of ourselves who have somehow lost touch with our, our current technology. Well, it's a generative bat signal, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's the thing that you see that yes. guides well. you to the place you need to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, you know what I mean? And, and it's interesting because like, it meets you where you're at. Yeah. Like a bat signal is something that you can see when you're not where you need to be. Yeah. That's what it alerts you to. Yeah. You need to be somewhere else, yeah. right? Yeah. It alerts you to that. And I think <laughs> that that part of the Rosetta disk where it's, you know, it's the large, the large type for the major languages on the planet mm -hmm. spirals in, says languages of the world, 
but you yep. can barely make out the last couple of phrases. Mm-hmm. And so you start looking at it a little bit more closely, and it's letting you know that, like, hey, I found you where you're at. Yeah, it's like at follow the me. readable level. Follow me. Yeah, there's a bit of a white rabbit situation <laughs> yeah. there, right? Yeah. Kind of yeah. leads you around in this spiral. You're going down the <laughs> rabbit hole, and you're about to learn how to speak every single language on the planet. Well, not every single language, but the ones that you're able to capture. Yeah. You know, we lose a language every two weeks. Yeah. Right now, we are in the midst of the largest uh, mass extinction of language on the planet. Yeah. Uh, but we've got about 7,000 of them. And, and, and counting, there's field workers who are capturing other ones, but about 7,000 right now. Yeah. And this preservation is important, too. I mean, one of the things when we think about ecology is the importance of biodiversity. Yes. So when we're thinking in long term frameworks, this idea of appreciating the uniqueness of culture. And, and bringing this holistic view into all the different cultures that together make this mosaic that is life itself. Yeah, and I think there's just like a, there's a, there's a near mystical aspect to it too, which is that there's a worldview that's captured in that language. Mm-hmm. And so to eliminate a language is to eliminate a worldview is kind of just like, you know, if you think of it on like a, you know, as the analog of like a superorganism, yeah. right? Like you wouldn't put down, you know, when you put down a dog, like, sad event nobody's celebrating that you know what I mean it's like a sad thing and then like when you like that's just a dog leaving the world and then like with people and then you kind of elevate it and it's like what are you doing when you eliminate a world view a whole way of seeing the world like that is a thing that should be mourned you know in in a major way and so or or preserved ideally not mourned preserved so you don't have this you have this idea of like we know we have we have sensitivities that are baked into our response to the environment that make us that engender a mournful attitude in us yeah. when something's eliminated. Um, there's, yeah. So there's almost like a, I think what you, you might be pointing at is a, a certain irreducible complexity encoded in these different means by which humans express themselves. Um, this diverse system of languages. And, and this is actually something, and I just kind of came to this realization, um, contrasting my present re- response and, and reaction with uh, the response and reaction that I may have had even five or six years ago and, and drawing the benefit of long-term thinking from that, which is I could imagine a prior version of myself saying that or imagining or, or conceptualizing these languages as something that were uh, compressible, that were reducible to uh, or subsumable by other languages in a way that was not lossy. That, you know, in theory, okay, perhaps they're going away. Uh, that being said, they're being, uh, their expressivity may not be being lost because they might be being subsumed by more expressive languages. Uh, but in a way, I think that the long-term time frame uh, gives lie to that previous interpretation and even perhaps the prior ignorance or arrogance of my own assumptions in the sense that um, to make a statement like that assumes that we have all the knowledge necessary in this moment in time to be able to make a statement about when we may benefit or, or understand or, or, or extract knowledge or, or wisdom from this unique mode of expressivity or this unique language. Um, so in that way, this long-term thinking is, uh, this is a concrete example of how it's been humbling for me, even in, in, in this particular conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it's not an immediately obvious thing that you would need 7,000 languages. It seems redundant to say the least, mm-hmm. uh, you know, exuberant 
say like like why would you need seven thousand languages kind of a is a i think a reasonable thought on yeah. the surface right why does the rainforest need millions of species yeah it's like why do you need seven thousand you know crayons like you can yeah. make a nice picture with five right and i think some of us you know especially when you think about you know the internet and how it's like predominantly in some major languages um you think about like why would you need why would you need to be able to translate and everything but yeah. like you said like there's this irreducible complexity is one way to think about it or there's this like uh, there's almost a dignity centered on these like well it's a worldview and like i said like that's like this meta organism super organism yeah. it's this like it's this thing that existed for not 70 years but this thing that existed for in a lot of cases maybe generations right maybe 70 generations yeah. or something um and so you have these longer arcs and it's like wow that's a thing in the world that's persisted for a while and to see that pass away is a real tragedy if you can do something about it. Mm -hmm. So that project seeks to make sure that we're preserving all the documentation necessary to, you know, have it around. Um, it's not perfect. I mean, ideally, again, these things are more, it's less the building metaphor and more the gardening metaphor. Yeah. It's like you need people to speak a language, right? More than you need people to have access to a nickel disc on a comet. <laughs> um, but like, there is a sense in which the next best thing, if you don't have a community, is is these long-term archives it'll be like okay you've got it you can translate it, you can use it you might be able to resurrect it they've resurrected languages in the past like yeah languages so there's also something really beautiful to the idea of all these different languages that seem so different that underlying them are the same values and hopes and truths and i don't know it was uh, the commonalities, the commonalities. Yeah. Um, it was the I, uh, the movie Arrival, which was uh, based on a science fiction book that comes to mind of uh, the story of aliens coming to this planet and basically setting up camp in all these different parts of the globe and humans having to try to figure out, like, why are they here? What are we supposed to do? And really what it turned out to be the case was the challenge that the aliens had posed to the humans was can you actually talk to each other and collaborate together? And the Rosetta disk, that project, speaks to this idea that we've been trying to talk to each other since forever. And what we're doing with coherence is, is cohering all of these different ways that have unfolded of how we can talk to each other and provide this context, this space for saying we are talking to each other. Yeah, 100%. I think that's, that's, that's deeply insightful and also re relates to... And perhaps we can go even into like the, the, the more deeply, uh, the realm of more deeply archetypal religious frameworks there. I think that might be a good pivot in terms of this notion of totalizing structures versus coherent structures in a way, right? Where it's like, you're talking about this idea of, of can systems cooperate or coordinate despite the fact that they might have different languages uh, because we've always wanted to communicate. And yet we also have stories that are like the story of the Tower of Babel. Where it's like if you try to create totalizing frameworks that diminish the diversity or diminish the unique information landscapes of these perspectives, these evolutionary perspectives, then you are actually doomed to uh, crumble or you are doomed to be refragmented back into a state of, of incoherence, of, of incommunicability in which uh, you are no longer you know, capable of of cooperating and fall into a state that is far more likely to precipitate violence and conflict. And I think, you know, that's something that is, uh, I think, deeply relevant to this notion of where we are today politically, uh, both domestically and geopolitically, 
in terms of being at the, the precipice of this, this moment where we're all globally connected at the speed of light. We can all communicate with each other very easily, yet we're still struggling to figure out how it all fits together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, earlier I'd mentioned that there's a sense in which Long Now started in 1996. Yeah. And there's a sense in which we're carrying the torch started long, long before mm-hmm. that. I think when you take ancient wisdom seriously and you look at these stories, like the, the story of the Tower of Babel, mm-hmm. like one of the things you really have to like kind of think about and come to terms with is this idea that like that story is about as old as writing, right? Yeah. Okay. Those are some long-term thinkers <laughs> who thought that maybe in the future this story would be useful. Yeah. Now, they wrote a story that almost perfectly talks about our social media landscape today. It's mm-hmm. really interesting, right? When you have these totalitizing... Uh, total, totalitizing? Totalizing. Totalizing structures. Thank <laughs> you. Um, when you have these totalizing structures, they, they tend to engender this conflict and this speaking of different languages that causes the whole thing to collapse, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's really interesting that that's a pattern mm-hmm. that was recognized thousands of years ago and was successfully passed forward to us. So here at the interval, you know, anybody who walks into the bar, they're going to see a floor-to-ceiling library. And it's not just any library, and it's not just a collection of books we think is cool, but we're trying to build a canon, a tightly curated canon of about 3,000 volumes that's designed to be the kinds of books that you would need if you needed to jumpstart civilization. So how do you make steel? How do you make penicillin? Do you have Plato in there? Do you have Shakespeare in there? Do you have some science fiction? Dostoevsky, you've got poetry. It's the whole... It's the stuff you want. It's the stuff you need. It's the stuff that we want to pass forward to the next generation in the most robust way possible, right? My end goal for that project is is basically to have that micro etched on a nickel discs like the Rosetta disc <laughs> yeah, so yeah. that I can kind of disseminate this entire library, right? Mm-hmm. Or I've joked about how great it would be if we could encode it in genetics and just I could have the library with me yeah. in all of my introns. That would be lovely. Or if every human being could uh, just start with that as a, as a base level of knowledge, shared knowledge. Yeah, why not? So, so this idea of like we're thinking deeply and... and um, meditatively mm-hmm. about how to get a message forward in the next thousand years, thousand years. But we can't stop and neglect the fact that there are messages from thousands of years hence that have made their way into our hands. And somebody thought that was a useful thing. And it's like interesting. Like, is that useful? Are, mm-hmm. are, is there anything in these stories? Like when you read the Upanishads, is there anything in there that's going to speak to you? Oh, when yeah. you read the Quran, when you read like the Torah, are there things in there that are going to tell you how to live a better life? They that's do. an interesting question. Yeah, yeah, and I think sometimes, you know, religion, politics, they get so intertwined that sometimes this question isn't always grappled correctly, I think. I think really like regardless of your religious or political predilections, that is an interesting feat, just baldly. I think it's an interesting yeah. feat that we have texts that have been yeah. passed to us yeah. from thousands yeah. of years ago, and, and that deserves, like, notice, right? Like, mm-hmm. like without going any further, like, it just deserves notice. And, like, as somebody who's working on a project that's trying to get messages thousands of years in the future, like, this is kind of, this is the environment we're at. We talked about, like, the proper view requires the proper distance. If you're trying to do this project on a thousand-year time scale, look at the other projects on thousand-year time scales. Mm-hmm. Most publishing deadlines... <laughs> most books are not thousand year time scales but there are some books that are that old yeah and so those books you know tend to be i think the most instructive for how one can succeed and how one can totally fail at this right like i mean obviously these stories have failed in certain important regards mm-hmm. right they've turned off some of the people i think that are most likely to make use of them mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and so this is so where did that pro- like like any other build measure learn loop out here in silicon valley mm-hmm. like where did that project go wrong 
how do we iterate on it, improve upon it, and go through this long cycle again um, to, you know, and hopefully come out at a higher spot. Like if you think of it like a, you're not just moving around a merry-go-round, not just moving around a circle, but every time you come around 360 degrees, you're up in yep. the other plane, just yeah, a little bit higher. Pops. So you loops end up in kind of like a helical spiral, spiral. Yeah, spiral. spiral kind of thing. So I think like how do we do that with regards to canonical development? We have thousand-year-old canons yeah. and like, okay, we're going to start a new one. How do we do this? I think it's provides a lot of room for collaboration and conversation, which is why I think the most exciting part for this project is going to be when it's at 3,000 volumes. Right now we're at like 2,000, 2,500, I think, last time mm-hmm. I counted, which I haven't done actually physically counted all the books <laughs> yet. But I think we've got another 500 to 1,000 left till the shelves are full. Mm-hmm. And once the shelves are full, it's like a, it's like a busy club on a Saturday night. Yeah. It's one in, one, one, out. one out. And yeah. I think that's when the conversations are going to get real good. Yeah. Also, I think that's when the conversations oh, yeah. are going to get real heated. Yeah. Like, it's going to be intense. Because <laughs> sure. someone's going to be like, no, you can't have a canon without this book. And they've got a case, and I want them to come make their case. Yeah. Yeah. Make your case. Yeah, yeah. You want, you want, you want, yeah. Uh, yeah, you want Plato's dialogues in there? All right, tell us why that's good, because yeah. otherwise we've got to get rid of, like, what, steel? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are these choices? Like, choosing your favorite child. You should use the metaphor of the, well, I don't want to tell you what you should no, or please, shouldn't do, yeah. but one, one interesting way of perhaps approaching a situation like that um, is using the metaphor of like an annealing process mm-hmm. where where you actually, instead of saying there's one in, one out, you build up a, um, you build up like a... Go past it a bit. A Go residue of like 50 that might be waiting to potentially get in or 100 that might be waiting to potentially get in. And then like introduce a shock to the system where you actually randomly sort them so people don't necessarily remember what's in or what's Ooh. out. And like different people are responsible for taking different sections of, of that new like say that instead of you said three thousand now there's thirty one hundred, and then re uh, integrating what should stay and what should go. And so maybe each person, each group, small group of people gets like fifty or whatever books, and then they re decide. You know, they decide based on what they might remember or not. It'd be interesting to see like if they come up with the same three thousand in, uh, one hundred out. Right, mm. without this idea of having to immediately sacrifice one for one, right, oh, like or that. or like an uh, or like an inherent in group versus out group, because you by doing the one for one, you immediately project that in group out group frame, as opposed to like kind of saying, all of th- th- these are books, these are another hundred that we think might be worthwhile. Now we have to figure out whether or not we think they belong, like in, a, in an exploded variant, uh, an exploded form. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a fuzzier boundary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I think does engender a different kind of conversation. It's yeah, less yeah. antagonistic. So that's a really good idea. Yeah. That's why we love having these conversations. Because <laughs> it's through conversations like this and input like yours that these projects advance. Yeah. Right? Like, Long Now Foundation is not a hugely staffed nonprofit. Sure. You know, there's four directors um, and, and, you know, a small group of full time people and a small army of volunteers. But truthfully, it's not a huge organization. And, um, and so, so having conversations like this really kind of bring these new ideas into the fold, allow us to kind of look at it in a new way. And this is good. We'll have to come back to this um, as soon as it's one in, one out, or it's not. <laughs> so that's really good. I like that idea of doing the annealing process. That's, yeah. I think um, perhaps almost all of life at almost every scale might be a process akin to that process. I'm becoming increasingly convinced of this. Mm-hmm. That might just be my own. My own projections or my no, own delusions. No, that's a good pattern to see. Yeah. And it seems to be like a, a, a stable yeah. pattern. Like, yeah. yeah. Perhaps archetypal pattern mm-hmm. of sorts. Yeah, archetypes are good long now things, right? Oh, yeah. These things, these things have been around, like these like kind of cookie cutter right. roles. 
uh, in the community have been around for so themes, long. Themes, the thematics. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, it kind of even begs the question, like, we joke around, like, sometimes people, I forget what it was, um, people have talked about the clock being, like, a cathedral, and it's like, it is yep, like it a is. cathedral. Dude, Long yeah. Now is my church. Yeah. Like, I come to the Salt Talks, I come to the Friday Happy Hours, the Tuesday Salons, like, it's like the church. It's like where... There's something timeless there that I'm bringing myself to a place, to an experience, to a group of people in a way that, yes, it's sensitive to, like, what the topic is or the soup du jour or whatever it might be. But, like, I mean, dude, from the minute we met, it was just like, oh, I'm probably going to know this person for years and years. Yep. And it actually adds something to the relationship itself. We're not rushed. We're not hurrying to get anywhere. We are here. We are present. We are in the long now. Yeah, the the moment of our relationship was really expansive, mm-hmm. as well, right? Like as soon as like with both of you guys actually. So my initial conversations with both of you were the kind of conversation that we're trying to capture here on the podcast, right? Like we're just <laughs> hoping that same magic happens. But the truth is, like it's so hard to get that magic, right? It's like capturing that spark at the beginning of any relationship. It's like how do you get that? Like well, artists and authors and directors mm-hmm. and musicians have been trying to put that in a bottle forever yeah. you know no one succeeded right <laughs> um, so I'm sure this isn't succeeding in being failure to varying degrees but yeah for whatever some of, it's some worth. of them we've kept around for hundreds of thousands of years still yeah. Yeah, but for whatever it's worth <laughs> this conversation is less electric than the first conversation I had with both of you which was literally like whoa whoa you made that reference whoa you made another reference yeah. whoa we are so in the same ballpark because <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's weird it's like a collection like sometimes when you have these conversations they kind of become like a weird like um like flexing of references right you see people who are like oh well, so and so says this and oh yeah. I read this and it becomes this combative flexing mm-hmm. and then sometimes you'll be in a conversation like this where there's lots of references You're like oh my god Alan Watts this and Buckminster Fuller this yeah, and exactly. Norwegian this and like you kind of go through these things and like you just see the other person lighting up with the yeah. references instead of being combative yeah. and it's less like flexing and it's more like kind of like opening up your jacket and becoming like more vulnerable to the other person and saying like well yeah. here's what I'm feeling and here's what's <laughs> resonating and if they're like yes that's resonating with me you're like yeah well let's let's like let's open up our, <laughs> it's like, let's put it all on the table and like yeah. see what we can build with this right yeah. It's, like, yeah. it's more cooperative it's more sharing yeah. um, and with both of you guys in a couple of minutes of having that conversation I was immediately like whoa because both of you guys have a sensitivity to both the eastern canon yeah. and the western canon of philosophy mm-hmm. and science right like so we have this like cultural kind of split where we both like uh, We've explored what's not the culture that we've grown up in as well mm-hmm. yep. and kind of taken some of those lessons back into the culture that we're here in um, and kind of like built something out of it. And so it's interesting, but it's like, it's not a common pattern. Mm-hmm. It's a unique archetypal pattern. It's that generative bat signal mm-hmm. that kind of makes you go, whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's part, partly, at least in the way that I personally feel this, it's it's almost a, uh, I don't want to, I don't necessarily want to frame it this way, but an addiction to the process as opposed to like mm. a, a, a stable end point. Right? Like I don't, mm. I actually, I actually, I, I'm terrified to some extent of reaching a, a final conclusion. <laughs> like that, that sounds horrible to me to, to say, Oh, like have if, the answers. If, 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 if I were delivered on a, on a, on a, you know, ethereal platter, the answers to all, I might just kill myself the next day because what, what's the point after that? Like what, you know, I'm to some extent addicted to the process of rejuvenation, the process mm, of true. of constantly seeking out which parts of me need to go, just like the one in one out of the books. Yeah, like yeah. we're like that ourselves. It's oh, not yeah. just a metaphor for the books. It's also how our brains operate. Like, well, and Heidegger understood that, yeah. right? The idea of understanding your possibilities and projecting yourself into the future. Yeah. This idea that you 
are not limited by what you are. You actually are this projecting thing. Yeah. That mm-hmm. you're putting things forth and like if there's no possibilities for you in the future, then you are kind of dead. Mm-hmm. If you have the answers and there's no wiggle room, yeah. then like that's that's a kind of death. Yeah. And life comes from having the questions open, mm-hmm. of preserving these possibilities for the future, right? Like yeah. this is really kind of the root idea. And so yeah, I mean I think being a steward of questions is a good thing to be at. Yeah. It's what keeps you propelled forward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're always moving through this like Hegelian dialectic to oh, yeah. better and better and better uh, you know situations. Um, but yeah, like I think I think arriving at a conclusion, like a concrete, dogmatic, finished position, is one of the more dangerous things you can oh, do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I include the fact that I'm stoked on preserving possibilities. <laughs> like, okay, I would love to have a conversation with someone who's like, whoa, whoa, whoa no, you haven't thought yeah, this all the way right. through. Yeah. Um, I want that conversation. Well, we to can be have open. a conversation kind of like that right now if you want to. Oh, let's, dude, let's go for it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm here. Well, I just think that there's an interesting pattern of, um, so something I've been kind of fascinated with recently is, is the art of bonsai, mm-hmm. right? And, and the idea that in bonsai, there's the, this kind of library of like, I forget exactly how many, like 16 or 18, like archetypal base patterns of different types of branching patterns or nesting patterns of, of the, of the trees themselves. And those are in a way not just patterns about trees, but these patterns about nature itself that are, you know, one can combine them in this generative flow, but they all depend on pruning. Not pruning like necessarily imposing yourself upon it, but pruning in a way that brings out the most representative forms of, of these generative patterns that can then be combined into infinitely beautiful new... Um, you know, n- new manifestations of the art form, right? Mm-hmm. Yet, it's still, there's this pruning action, right? Or in, in the book domain, like you were talking about, there's this one in, this one out. Like, to some extent, that's, that's, that's getting rid of a particular path. It's, it's, it's eliminating a particular yeah. set of possibilities. Yeah, it's this anchoring thing to these archetypes. Yeah. These 16 archetypal yeah. bonsai yeah. trees. Yeah. Because but total like, possibility is too much, perhaps. To, total possibility is, might be indistinguishable from chaos. Yeah, and I think I think you're on the right track there. I think you know Freud wrote Civilization and Its Discontents, yeah. and that book is about the idea that like to be an authentic person means to have like this limitless possibility to be yourself. You know, you do you kind of thing. You know, um, but then civilization requires you to embody a persona um, or like an archetype, right? Like you have to be a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, and you should be a good one. And then to do that, like, well, you're not essentially a butcher. You're not essentially a baker, or a candlestick maker, and so you end up kind of like bonsai pruning parts of yourself to to embody these archetypes right and like that's the price you pay for civilization is there's this tension Mm -hmm. um that like is you know i think in freud freud kind of saw it manifesting itself as like you know mental unhealth mental Mm -hmm. unwellness Mm -hmm. this idea that in order like the price the pauper you pay for civilization is that some people feel completely alienated by civilization Mm -hmm. because they don't see an archetype that resonates with them Mm -hmm. and so that's overly pruned yeah, there's like yeah, or like or to get them into that position would require too much pruning, and they don't want that much pruning. And so there's a certain sense in which like there's some flexibility there, which I think our modern culture is getting better at. Like we're getting better at saying like yeah, you're a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, sort of, and like you know, but like you know, like I'm a part-time web developer, but I'm also a basketball player, and like that's that's becoming like a little bit. You know, you have these hybrid personas that are like kind of more forgiving than maybe they used to be. Right? It used to be that like if my dad was in the army, I was in the army. 
and if my dad was a priest then I would be a priest kind of thing right and now we're a little bit more open about this stuff we're a little bit you know more flexible and I think that's an improvement overall for for humans for individuals but you're right a complete possibility is chaos right you can just do anything but that's also what you hand to the next generation is you say here is maximal possibility and it's up to you to figure out what to do with that you need to make some order out of that chaos Um, and I think that's a powerful move too so I still think I remain uh, in in favor of maximizing optionality for future generations Mm -hmm. even in the face of a lot of possibility being manifested through these archetypes yeah. through yeah. or like or, or perhaps passing down minimal stability or minimal constraints or you pass down the stories right yeah. you pass down the stories and let people choose from like think about like jazz right we've yeah. talked about jazz a couple times and had like some interesting philosophical conversations around it but like you have jazz standards and then you have jazz improvisation and then, you mm-hmm. know a jazz artist will take a certain standard and just tear it up a little bit and sometimes it's really awesome and it's, it's like a it's like a ineffably awesome and then sometimes it's kind of a disaster and like we've all been to jazz clubs for both hopefully um but like this idea that like you're still handed the standard like the archetypes in a certain way are the human standard moves like here is a standard embodiment and then as a jazz artist as an improvisational human being you can kind of say okay cool i'm mostly going to be a butcher baker candlestick maker but i've got this like got this jazzy thing i want to do right here and then you do it and then if you do it well people recognize it you get good feedback from the environment and then that's your new thing. Um, and then that like, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a certain element of like, of respect for those, respect for what is passed down, at least in the sense that it was good enough to make it this far and therefore it's worth understanding even if I'm going to move beyond it, transcend it, or even throw parts of it away. Um, so that I actually understand perhaps what I'm pruning back or throwing away. Like I remember that being driven home quite saliently, like when I visited the Picasso museum in Barcelona, uh, and I didn't, I I was somewhat familiar with, I mean, I was familiar with Picasso's work in the way that, you know, most people are superficially familiar with his work, maybe slightly more deeply than that, but I didn't realize just how, you know, just the breadth of his work and the degree to which he was, um, a classical painter like he could paint classically you know with the greats like he was he he had you know this immense capacity if he wanted to reproduce any art form that had existed throughout the prior you know, human canon he could have done so and he did do so just to perhaps feel that evolution within himself of humanity recapitulated on a shorter time frame in his own uh, art his own work and then he went beyond that and transcended it in a way that isn't obvious that he came from that place at all but uh but perhaps because he came from that place he was able to transcend it in a way that we perceive as brilliant or you know perhaps well, it's back to your immortal. annealing it's back to your annealing metaphor yeah it's like because he had all of this wide ranging uh optionality he could have painted in all these different styles then he brought it back to its essence mm-hmm. right and that was really interesting so it's kind of this diamond shape right where things expand and they're divergent and then they kind of converge. Oh, yeah. And I think maybe that's maybe that's the way to think about preserving possibilities. It's like you want to you want to start the next generation off in a divergent space and it's up to them to find that convergent movement. To accept like, that there's only going to diverge yeah. again. I mean, yeah, what do you do with all this? Stuff. Cosmos, yes, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but thank you for kind of waking up that that thought that like in the diamond model like that's only half the story to preserve possibilities. Yeah. The other the other part of the story is that 
when you're the inheritor possibilities, you have a convergent demand. You have to find something powerful and important and impactful to do with those that optionality. Yeah, and the long now tell that story. It's a good story. Yeah. Yeah, the long now recognizes that. With the Eno's quote: "The long now is recognizes that the precise mo- precise moment we're in grows out of the past and is a seed for the future. So if we know that there is this process of um, divergence and convergence, divergence and convergence, we can understand the context of where we are right now, which is inherently divergent." in the way that we see this sort of pendulum swinging, this part of the uh, Hegelian dialectic, as we spoke of, is there is this divergence. And what's required is some converging principles that can make sense of this chaos for everyone to cohere. And that's what we're trying to do with, with our endeavors. It's what the long now does. Um, it was interesting, though, as you're talking about Picasso, this is maybe going back to the beginning of that original thread, but James Joyce is, is one of my favorite novelists, and he, it's the same thing, where he basically showed that he could write the perfect novel. Um, Dubliners and the Portrait of an Artist of a Young Man is, is pretty much showing that. And then he completely breaks down everything that people thought was possible for what a novel could be with Ulysses. And it literally shocked people. It made people outrageous. Mm-hmm. And then he goes and he takes that to the next level of literally... Not e- creating his own language with Finnegan's Wake. That I mean, if you were to if you were to talk to Samuel Beckett or other people that really know, like everything is embedded in that tomb of uh, of a novel. There's there's yeah. everything there. All the threads are tied. It makes sense. Even I think, though like, McKenna looked at it as like an operating system for a new civilization of sorts. He, truly, <laughs> he was that he was that enraptured truly, by it. Truly, yeah. and 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 so Finnegan's it, Wake. Yeah. Wow, I didn't realize that. So it's speaking to this idea. So, but what? But what did he do? So he 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 converged on the portrait of an artist of a young man. We can say, and then he diverged, and you have Ulysses, and then he completely diverged into chaos. Because Finnegan's Wake, as great as it is, as fun as it is to try and read. It's chaotic. It's 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 yeah. completely dream logic. It's 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 yeah. not anything. You just said it in your words to try to read. Yeah, <laughs> you you really can't just like go through that book and feel like you're following. So there's something to that. I mean, it's it's both a conceptual art piece as well as it is just art itself. But in this world of of chaos of the divergence that we find ourselves in, what are these coherent mechanisms to bring us back to the context of? You know, the big here and the long now. I mean, the big here is, is we, we oftentimes we don't talk about the big here in the, in the context of the long now. But, like, truly, like, the big here, for me, and we're talking about empathy, I have an empathic relationship with this entire planet. I think both of you do, too, in, in the sense of we care for the people of this world. We care for the animals, the plants, the art, the newosphere, all of it. There's an empathic relationship. It is us. We are it. And so... It is ultimately something that we can come and converge back upon. And so as we go into this world of divergent, chaotic extrapolations upon whatever we're extrapolating upon, whether that's economics and business or arts or games, craft, whatever we find ourselves doing, do it. Like there is the, the, the diversity, the, the, the divergence is part of this process, but converging upon the underlying truths, the things that don't change, is, is so essential. Yeah, I think uh, one, to, to kind of just play off of that for a second, this idea of convergence, the reason I like the idea of coherence so much in the context of that convergence is because it, it 
it acknowledges the fact that the convergence shouldn't be absolute or deterministic in a sense that you know there's there's an element of coherence to it um but that coherence admits simultaneously that there's utility in the chaos and also that you know the the convergence should not result in stasis right it, it's fundamentally a, there's a dynamism in terms of coherence there's a looseness there's like a there's a connectivity but a loose connectivity that you know we don't we don't we neither spin off into full chaos nor do we impose tyrannical order and structure and i think there's a breathing it's a meta stability a breathing yeah, there's a breathing a yeah there's a yeah. coherent breathing oh yeah or a coherent heartbeat <laughs> right yeah yeah and there's a periodicity to it and there's a rhythm to it Definitely. and it's a longer rhythm than the ones we're used to mm-hmm. so there's certain sense in just sitting here now and having this conversation with you guys and talking about long-term thinking and what long now is doing here to kind of seed experiences of long-term thinking and experiences of deep time has already softened us up to this idea which is like whoa all right here's a pattern we found it's not on a human lifetime scale like this is a different kind yep. of thing and like so it opens you up to recognizing things that are really making they're, they're shaping your world they're yep. important yeah. things we think those so. patterns those are the patterns that will allow us to fundamentally get the information that needs to move from point A to point B across barriers that it usually doesn't move across, um, you know, across those barriers. Like we need to get back in touch with these deeper patterns. It doesn't necessarily matter how, you know, which persona you might embody on the day to day. We might all be able to connect with these patterns, you know, in your case of, of this deep time or this long now, um, you know, obviously you connect with more patterns beyond that, but you know, that's what we're trying to surface is what is the grammar that humanity can use in this kind of reconstructive semi-convergent phase to you know, reconnect with itself in a way that is coherent, reconnect with, you know, reconnect with uh, these things that are eternal that we need to remain in contact with if we are to, you know, establish a long now that is, uh, you know, that is the long now that we would wish for those who come afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I think grammar is the right word for it because, you know, in my grammar, in my language, it is constrictive. There mm-hmm. are certain things I can't say in English. That's why I need to reach in other languages when I look for a je ne sais quoi, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> it's like you need this. However, <laughs> however, it's also through the English language, this constricted realm of language yeah. that I've been able to express myself everything important I've ever said in my life, mm-hmm. um, if I've ever said anything important, <laughs> has come through the English yeah. language. And many completely unique or novel sentences or expressions. Yeah, so exactly this constricting force is also the enabling force mm-hmm. for so much. So there's a certain sense Creativity in which constriction... Creativity thrives in constraints. Yeah, constriction isn't always bad. However, you also want to kind of choose your constrictions, yeah. maybe, yeah. right? And so there's a sense in which the individual should pick what language you want to operate in. Maybe you love French and you went to France and you fell in love with somebody in France. Like you just want to live in French. Like you want to start dwelling in the French language. You should have that ability, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like I think, part of the preserving possibilities is kind of this meta thing of preserving the possibility of preserving possibilities. Yeah. Like you kind of you allow people to choose yeah. which constrictions are the constrictions they want to submit themselves yeah. to to express themselves in the way that is necessary to be most adaptive to their environment, which yeah. you can't anticipate in such a concrete and guaranteed fashion that you could make that decision for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is not this is not just metaphor. Like this is something Matthew and I harp on all the time is that like we're talking about metaphors, we're abstracting on things and and um 
what might appear as metaphors are actually truly the nature of the world. This chi convergence divergence is like a metaphor, but like, no, that's really how it happens. Or the breathing. The breathing. Mm -hmm. the like literally look yeah. at the earth from outer space and you can see it across time and see like from season to season, like it, it's literally breathing. Like this is not just a metaphor. The earth is breathing. People, people often don't even enter the space in which they can conceptualize that. And then a city breathes with its inflows and outflows, and yeah, we breathe. Yeah, did you see that GIF of New York recently that was on yeah, the Twitter? data visualization Beautiful. per hour. Yeah, the population yeah. per square block of it New York. It goes into the, yeah, it's just, yeah, we're all part of this breathing process, this rhythm, and tapping into that rhythm is, is what connects all these different threads. Yeah. I, I think part, something I've been thinking a lot about recently is this idea that in many ways the, the 20th century was this century of of linearization of, of these inputs, these outputs, these factory, you know, this factory metaphor of a assembly line, um, or of a, you know, of a convergent, everything must have these convergent outputs. Right. Mm -hmm. And in many ways that, that created this system that was detached from these natural cycles that exist everywhere around us. And it seems as if the 21st century will be characterized or at least should be characterized if we are, if we wish to see the 22nd century, um, by a, a bending back of these linear processes back into uh, more cyclical processes that understand these these patterns of um, of cyclicality of breathing of of time of temporality, mm -hmm. all of which are are all cyclical. Like whenever you go into nature, you see cyclicality everywhere, and you see these rhythms and you see yeah. those loops mm -hmm. establishing the frame and in the which constants, everything else in the constants yeah. of that. Uh, that, sorry, I completely lost the phrase you just used. But the, cyclicality, or yeah, the cyclicality, yeah. the constancy yeah. of Tempo, that cyclicality it like. is itself just kind of this single thing. So then you end up in this like single moment, mm -hmm. which is just the now. Yeah, yeah. You're back in the present moment, and so there's a sense that the further you get out, the further you come back into the middle, mm -hmm. and the long now is like both like reaching out. 10 millennia in both yeah. directions but then also bringing you right back to this conversation here mm -hmm. in this room mm -hmm. while the sun sets over the Golden Gate Bridge here on the California North Waterfront <laughs> here in the Brian Eno room uh, in the back of the interval which I encourage everybody to come check out um, yeah. it brings us back to this moment and helps us realize like where we are and what we're doing and are we being good ancestors and are we comporting ourselves in a way that makes sure that we're yeah doing good long term thinking mm -hmm. so yeah. here we are and here we are. I think that's a, uh, it's a wonderful place to wrap. I think that's a, a, a nice note for us to contemplate as we go about our, our day. And um, you know, I would like to thank you again for being here with us, Nicholas. Thank you so much for having honor, me. Honor to be here and have you on our podcast. Likewise. Likewise. Yeah. It was such a pleasure. And I, you know, God, I'm so stoked we got a chance to record one of these conversations. We've had so many. It's <laughs> yeah. good to capture one on tape and yeah. just like get a semblance of what some of this energy feels like. For sure. Definitely. So, I'm sure it won't you. be the last. No, absolutely. No. Alrighty. Thanks, folks. Thank, Thank you, guys. You. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.